truths of God's Word. We're taking our time as we're going through this rich gospel and sort of savoring it and studying it in depth. And so I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up to the New Testament book of Luke. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Hopefully you see this time together as the main course in our worship of God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that when the Thessalonians heard the word of God preached to them, that they did not accept it just as the words of men, but that they accepted it for what it really was, and that is the word of God. But then he goes on and he continues to say, it is that this word, which is also performs its work in you who believe. So it's in this context, knowing that it's the word of God performs its work in us by sanctifying us, protecting us, strengthening us, making us wise, that we spend a great deal of time working our way through the scriptures to make sure that we understand it and then ultimately apply it to our lives. So we're in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to look at the first of two interruptions that we're going to see in this long discourse that we've talked about that goes from 12.1 all the way to verse uh, 9 in chapter 13. But although this is going to be the first interruption that we're going to run into in this dialogue, this will be the second warning that Jesus is going to give us in this chapter in which he's going to begin with the word, Beware. Now, the word for beware is used about a dozen times in the New Testament, and three of those times it's used in the Gospel of Luke. But when it is used in Luke, it is used exclusively by our Lord Jesus Christ. He used it as we saw back in verse 1 of chapter 12. Um, He's going to use it in our text today in verse 15, and then we're going to see later on in Luke chapter 20, verse 46. But the word beware in the Greek is a word that means to take heed to or give attention to. So it's a verb that requires your action. It's a word of caution in which you need to give regard to and make sure that you apply yourself to because of the negative consequences you will face if you don't. It's like those uh, flashing arrows and those orange barrels and those warning signs that we see on the highway about a construction zone that we all seem to mostly ignore and just plow right on through those things, right? But when Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, begins to speak to us through his word with the word beware, it's of extreme importance that you and I pay attention to what he's about to say. It's a warning sign which the importance can't be overstated. And it's a warning that should be applied to every person, in every church, in every age, and in every nation. We need to really pay attention to this directional arrow and these orange barrels that Jesus is laying out for us here and make sure that we rightly understand and ultimately obey. Now, the first beware, if you recall, was from verse 1 in chapter 12, where Jesus warned the disciples specifically to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, what he was saying to the disciple and us was, is to stay away from the corrupting influence of false teachers because ultimately they're hypocrites and they're going to cause you to be one as well. These people are 
two-faced. They're like a performer on a stage who, when they're brought before the public eye, they ramp up their piety and their spirituality, and they appear to hold the king's keys to the kingdom. And yet, in their private lives, in their innermost person, their hearts are really far from God. And they ultimately are only holding the keys to hell. So, this is a warning given to us that we really should be true in that which we profess. We should be a genuine people who are not only hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Because full disclosure of your life and my life will come on judgment day. And your true self will be completely revealed before an all-knowing and an all-seeing God. God sees who you truly are. God knows everything about you. From the very words that are about ready to roll off your lips and your tongue, to the number of hairs on your head, to every secret sin you've ever committed, God knows everything about you. Every secret grumbling about His providence, every quiet distrust of His provisions, every lack of thankfulness that you've ever had for His mercy, every doubt of His wisdom and His sovereignty, every questioning of His judgment and His justice, every instance of not admiring His greatness, every commandment of God you never obeyed, every time you did not revere the holiness of God, all your sins will be laid before Him with whom we have much to do. And to live a life of hypocrisy is the absolute height and pinnacle of folly. To live a life of hypocrisy is to live a life of danger. And Jesus is giving us a warning by telling us, beware. And then we saw how Jesus gave us a most assured cure for that hypocrisy in verses 4 through 12. And it was kind of a a Trinitarian solution, we said, that we should live in the fear of God, not in a servile fear, which we're under this cruel taskmaster that's ready to just beat us down on every mistake we make, but in filial fear, in which we are now living under our Heavenly Father, in whom we look up to and we revere and we cherish and we want to please. And then we are to confess Christ as the Son before men, out of the overflow of our hearts because we love Him, because of the death He died for us and paid our penalty on the cross and made a way for us to come to the Father. It's to say that Jesus Christ alone is our Master, Savior, and Lord, and to do so publicly. And then, lastly, we are not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, meaning that when you've seen the work of God and you've heard the way of salvation is through faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, that you understand the gospel and its implications, you don't reject it, but you embrace it. You cling to Christ because you know that He is the living waters upon whom if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And He is the bread of life if you eat that you will never go hungry. So that brings us to our second beware in our text that we find in verse 15, and that is we are to beware of every form of greed. Now, if you're looking for a couple new inspirational verses to put on your refrigerator or your uh, blackboard wall or whatever, you can write these two down. Beware of hypocrisy 
and beware of greed. So let's read our text this morning and to help us gain the context and see exactly what it is our Lord is saying to his church this morning. We're going to read from verse 13 down to verse 21 of Luke chapter 12. I want to invite you, if you're there with me this morning, to stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able to do so. Luke chapter 12, we're starting in verse 13 down to verse 21. God's inspired, inerrant, and holy word says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to place Christ first and foremost in our life. Help us to treasure him greatly. Lord, help us to listen to these words that we're about to hear and apply them to our lives so that we can walk more closely with you, to be conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, this is what we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning, and it's a question that you may have never really ever been asked of you before. And the question is this. When you come to church... And we come to this portion of our worship and our time that we have together in which a sermon is preached, regardless of who is in this pulpit, would you say that you are someone who hears a sermon being preached or someone who listens to a sermon being preached? Now, before we answer that question, we may need to make some qualifications between the difference of hearing and listening because I think there is a distinct difference. When we say that someone is hearing or that someone hears something being said, what I mean is that you're really just kind of simply perceiving that sound is is being brought through the airwaves. Provided that you're not a hearing-impaired person, hearing just really generally happens. And, And it doesn't really require much effort on your part. Hearing is something really that's pretty easy to do. But when we talk about listening or listening to something being said, we're talking about something that we do consciously and purposefully. It requires an element of concentration so that your brain can actually process the meaning from the words that you hear. And it's a skill that requires you to not only engage your ears, 
but your mind, and which is something sometimes more difficult to do. I think if we could all probably admit and generalize as a statement that the art of listening is grossly lacking in our world today, it would probably be more accurate of a statement to say that people are hard of listening rather than hard of hearing. We live in a world that's really kind of consumed with sound bites and slogans right now as a means to pass on information. We prefer convenience over content and style over substance. Ideas and ideologies are reduced down to a hashtag or a little slogan or maybe a 140-character tweet. We live really in a, it's a postmodern culture that really appeals to feelings more than it does the mind. And the church, sadly, has given way to this notion. There's been an increase in the use of anything and everything in order to try to produce some sort of whipped up emotional high for the congregant. All the while, there's been a, a decrease in the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. There's no need to preach anything meaningful, deep, or consequential to a person's soul. Pastors can preach sermons really just about on anything these days and really get away with it. There's sanctuaries and stadium-sized filled churches full of people who are really just hearing a motivational self-help speech. Rather than listening to a man who's willing to stand in a pulpit open up the Word of God and proclaim it with authority and with conviction. I watched a video clip uh, this past week of a pastor at a megachurch, and they claimed to have about fifteen to 20,000 people come through on a Sunday morning. And he told his congregants during his sermon that he wakes up and he tells himself these seven words on a daily basis. He says to himself, quote, Christ is in me, I am enough. Christ is in me. I am enough. And then he went on to say in that same message, he said, you know what? If you're going to have peace in your life, you're going to have to talk yourself into peace. And basically, he goes on and on about how you're in control of your own destiny. You're in control of your circumstances. You're in control of your own future. And all you have to do is think positively to yourself, and then everything's going to just work out swell in your life if you do these things. And all these people, all these people are like, yeah, Amen. Amen. The drums are drumming when he's doing his little highlights and all that stuff. And and people are just waving their hands and they're so excited. But it's all a lie. If you are a believer, you can be sure that Jesus Christ is in you. He said we will come and make our abode in you. Christ is surely in you if you are a Christian. But it's not you that is enough. It is Jesus Christ that will be enough. Because that's the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ would have preeminence in your life, meaning that He is in your life and He is over and above everything. Not that you talk yourself into peace and positive circumstances. Not that you talk the peace of God into your life. But no matter what comes your way, whether it's riches or poverty, or it's health or it's sickness, or whether it's freedom or imprisonment or life or death, even if you are sawn in two, as Hebrews 11 tells us, Jesus Christ is everything to you. That's the gospel. 
Not this false prosperity gospel that's running around out there telling you that you can drive a Mercedes and fly a multi-million dollar jet and have perfect health. That's a lie. But it's that Christ is preeminent and first in your life. That's what we read from Colossians 1. That He is first. But these people, they're only hearing what they want to hear. They're creating a feeling that they only want to feel. They aren't actually listening to the sermon from this guy and then taking it and seeing how does it line up with the Word of God. That's what you need to do with everything I'm telling you. And it's not as if Paul doesn't see this coming. And when he prophetically wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, he said, For there will be a time come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So are you someone who just hears a sermon preached? Or are you someone who's listening to the sermon preached? Are you someone who just wants to endure a 30 to 45 minute sermon and I went to church this week and check your box? Or are you someone who comes with a holy appetite for the word of God, hungry for the truths of God so that you can be conformed into the image of Christ? Are you someone who says to yourself that what you heard on Sunday just made you feel good? Or that what you listened to on Sunday made Christ look glorious and His Word was proclaimed? To be honest, there's probably more times than not we've probably just heard a sermon and not really actually listened to a sermon and engaged our minds to see if what we had just heard and listened to aligned with the Word of God myself included. But that's exactly where Jesus finds himself in our text this morning. He's surrounded by tens of thousands of people in this crowd, and here comes that one guy who wasn't listening to a word he was saying. Look with me where it says in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So straight away, we're presented with the problem, all right? I'm going to alliterate this week. I got three Ps, okay? So don't, don't throw tomatoes at me later. The problem, straight away. Now, to be honest, we've probably all been in a similar situation that Jesus finds himself in, and that you're engaged in what you thought was some, a conversation with someone, and you're explaining some details of your life and your day. You've given them a long discourse about what this person said and what that person said. And then you finally get to the point where you're kind of looking for some feedback from that person to make sure that they actually heard what you were saying and listening to and understood exactly what you were saying. And they respond in such a way that you wonder, what planet are they on? Now, Wives, do not elbow your husbands at this point. But Jesus had just got done talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I mean, how no forgiveness is granted to a person uh, who does it, and then out of the blue, here comes this guy with a complaint about his brother. Now, you would think that if this guy was actually listening to Jesus and not just hearing him, that he would have had the same questions that you and I did. And about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, because there's eternal consequences to doing it. We want to know what in the world is it, and have I done it? But this guy, he could really care less about anything eternal that Jesus has been talking about, and he wants Jesus to settle a dispute 
between him and his brother. Now, we should know that it probably would not have been too out of the ordinary for this guy to come up to a rabbi to solve a problem. And that's what this man addresses Jesus as here, as rabbi or teacher. But a rabbi was routinely called to come and settle some civil disputes between people because there might have been this kind of gray area in the law, in the Old Testament law, which already deals with inheritances. And they would have come to this rabbi for a little clarification. And so this guy coming to Jesus to ask him to settle his case isn't really too bizarre. Now, we don't know if there's any real legitimacy to his complaint. We don't know what his motives are. But we can only presume that Jesus, who knows what's in the heart of man, knows exactly what this guy is getting to and that his motives aren't pure. But the important thing to notice is that this man only heard Jesus speaking and he wasn't listening to a word He said, and his mind's only fixated on the present life and not the life to come. If we're real honest with ourselves, how much do we think about things eternal? Are you spending more time in your week in the pursuit of treasures where moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, or are you pursuing treasures in heaven? Are you truly someone who's homesick for heaven? Or are you busy and caught up in this present age and all you think about is the next biggest thing that you're going to get involved into or the next big deal you're going to do? If I had to guess, I would say that some of us in this room, if not most of us, would probably identify with this man more than we care to admit. So then Jesus responds in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, But he said to him, Man... Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possession. So Jesus responds to this guy really in a really unsympathetic way by addressing him as man. It, It would be our English equivalent of mister, which you might address a stranger with. If Jesus was from California, he might have said, dude, or New Jersey, he might have said, hey, but Jesus says to this guy, man, who appointed me an arbitrator or a judge over you? I've got to get both the East Coast and the West Coast in, so I apologize. But he says, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? In other words, what he's saying here is, what business is it of mine in deciding these nonsensical issues and these mundane matters regarding stuff. I'm not here to settle material disputes like your people's court. I'm not your Judge Judy or your Judge Wapner, if you're old enough to remember him. But I'm not here to settle material disputes. I'm here to settle the spiritual disputes within the souls of men. I got bigger things to deal with than your inheritance with your brother. And so seizing it on opportunity, as Jesus frequently does... To try to make this a teachable moment, he gives the man what he needs and not what he wants. Look at verse 15 with me. He goes on. Then he said to him, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possession. So here we run into our our second beware, our second warning sign that Jesus has given us, and that is to beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now the word for greed here could be translated covetousness. 
It's the, the wanting of more and more beyond what we need. Or it's a thirst for having more. Thomas Watson called greed as an insatiable desire of getting the world. And, and more times than not, our greed comes in the form of desiring more money and more wealth. We want more money so we can get more stuff. We get more stuff and then we still want more money. So it goes on and on and on. So first of all, I want you to know that the Bible does not forbid the possession of money and wealth. There were many godly men in the Bible, such as uh, Job and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27, 57. All of them were wealthy and recognized at some level or another that it was God who gives the power and the ability to accumulate wealth, as it says in Deuteronomy 8.18. But what the Bible does forbid in regards to money is the loving of it. In other words, it has to do with your desire. The sin is not in having wealth. The sin is in what you do with it. It's not the amount but it's the attitude. And the Bible again and again gives us many examples of those who lived and and had a desire for the love of money and were greedy. And it led to all sorts of problems, especially eternal problems. Balaam's love of money in Numbers 22 through 24 caused him to attempt to curse God's people in which it ultimately cost him his life. Delilah's love of money in Judges 16 caused her to betray Samson and it ended in the death of thousands of people. Judas' love for 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26 caused him to betray our Lord, and ended, or rather it cost him an eternity without him. Ananias and Sapphira, their love of money caused them to lie to God in Acts chapter 5, and it brought about an immediate divine judgment as a result. In a word, greed and covetousness and the loving of money Ultimately, it causes you to be unfaithful to God, and the consequences are devastating to your soul. But it's not as if the Bible is not packed with warnings to us to be watchful of our hearts and its desire of money. In the 10th and last commandment in Exodus chapter 20 warns us of unholy desires and forbidding covetousness, whether it be our neighbor's wife, servant, or possessions, or anything that belongs to him. Israel, as they were poised to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14, it says that they were warned by Moses, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God and not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The church at Ephesus was instructed in Ephesians 5.3, but immorality, any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. Same thing in Colossians 3.5, Paul instructed us to consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And Paul exhorted 
Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, he said, instruct those who are rich in this present age, this present world rather, not to be conceited and fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And we could quote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Jeremiah, Malachi, and so many more about the pain and the folly of putting our hopes and our securities upon our possessions and riches and the desire for more of them because it creates a false security. It creates a devastatingly false hope. And Jesus basically says that when he goes on our verse, he says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the fullness of your life will never ever come from what you own. The true lasting joy, true happiness will never be found in the stuff you own, no matter how opulent, no matter how prestigious or how much of it you have. Solomon realized this when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Listen, you can have the absolute nicest house on the block. You can have the most perfectly manicured lawn. You can have the most acreage and the biggest farm. You can drive the nicest car. You can have a fat wallet and a big bank account. And you can pursue those things as far as you possibly can. And yet you can still be the poorest and most miserable person on the block because when it comes right down to it, you haven't done what really matters. And that, and that is for you to put your trust and your confidence and having your contentment come from Jesus Christ. That's where your true joy is going to come from. That's where your true happiness is going to reside. Psalm 1611 says that in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So to illustrate this point, he tells them a parable in verse 16. And we'll go through this somewhat quickly. And he told him a parable. He said, the land of a rich man was very productive. So far, so good, right? That's not really a bad problem to have, a productive crop. Verse 17, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? We're still good, right? It's a reasonable question to ask. I have all these crops and nowhere to put them. What am I going to do with all this grain? But then here's where it starts to go bad in verse 18. He says, then he, said to, then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now stop right there for a second. I want you to notice that he began by having this bumper crop and having a dilemma about where he's going to put all of it. But not only does he have a grain storage problem to worry about, but now he's worrying about where is he going to store all his goods. You see that? It says, my grain and my goods. He's got a, he needs a place to store all of his stuff. This guy's a materialist. He's accumulated so much stuff that he's got it in storage in buildings. And so his solution is to tear it down, his current barns, and build newer and bigger ones. He doesn't want to build additional barns in order to take away that valuable land for planting and growing. And he wants to tear down these perfectly good barns that are storing his goods And build some new ones. So then in verse 19, this is where it goes south really, really quick. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, 
and be merry. So here the man reasons within himself with all that he has and with all that he's accumulated and all that he thinks he has provided himself with, that somehow, someway, all that he's done is going to satisfy his soul. He believes that with all of these gathered and accumulated for himself, that this is the true way to inner peace and tranquility, that the material is going to somehow satisfy the spiritual. And so if we broke it all down, we can see that there's three problems that we can see with this man in the, pro- in the parable. And it's not really hard to see that this guy's world, it centers around himself, where he is the center of his own personal universe. First of all, notice that he's a selfish man. He doesn't even consider giving anything away or selling it for the goods of others, but only that he might store it up for himself. He's got an abundance for himself already, and he doesn't even consider how much is too much. So he's a selfish man. So if we would notice also of the 54 words in this parable, about 12 of them are I, me, and my, right? They are my crops, my barns, my goods, and this is what I will do. I will tear down. I will rebuild. He's a selfish man. Secondly, we notice that he is a self-made man. Notice that not once did he ever give thanks to God for the rain and the sun to even grow his bumper harvest. Of all the people should ever be thankful to God, it should be a farmer, right? But in a very real and a very practical terms, this guy is what we could call an agricultural atheist. All right? He has no sense that it was God who caused and sustained the growth of his crops. And also notice as we get a a glimpse into this man's mind, we can see that he's asked himself the question and he's given himself the answer. There's this inner dialogue within himself that shows us that he thinks he's autonomous and he's self-sufficient. So he's a selfish man, he's a self-made man, and then thirdly we see that he's a self-satisfied man. When we see him speak to his soul, as it were, and, and find himself being satisfied with his material and agricultural wealth, He fully believes that this is going to allow him to eat, drink, and be merry in his old age. He's the source of his own enjoyment, or so he thinks. But notice in verse 20 that although this man, he thought he was having this inner dialogue with himself, God knew exactly what he was thinking. Nothing notices the, or nothing escapes, rather, the notice of Almighty God. We saw that earlier in chapter 12. But verse 20, it says there with me, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And God says to this man, here's your crucial mistake. You are not in control of your future. I'm the one who has numbered your days. I'm the one who has declared the end from the beginning. You're not the master of your own fate, and you're not the captain of your own soul. I am. And though this man thought he was wise and prudent in his reasoning, God says that he is a fool, or that word literally means that you're without sense. You have no understanding. He would have been wise to consider Psalm 39, 6, which says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This man never considered God, He never considered others, 
and he never considered his own immortality. So we had the problem, we have had the parable, and then lastly, the point of all this, in verse 21, it says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The point is that a man who lives for himself, lives for the world, accumulates and pursues wealth, and lives without any consideration of God, is actually the poorest, most despicable soul in the world. Someone once said on his deathbed that heaven is a place in which few kings and few rich men come. So who is rich towards God? How do you be rich towards God? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, a rich man who's, a, a man who's rich towards God is he who builds his house upon the rock and not the sand. A rich man chooses the narrow road and the narrow gate. A rich man seeks first the kingdom of God. A rich man is one who has the world's good and he sees his brother in need and he actually gives to him generously. A rich man is one whose strong confidence resides in God and God alone and not in this world. A rich man is one who puts Christ first above all things. Hebrews 11.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. A rich man places God above anything and everything that he has. So let me ask you this morning, would you say that you're a content person? Are you someone who's living in light of eternity in terms of using your money, your time, and your possessions? Would you not be more satisfied and enjoy what you currently had if only you had a heart of contentment rather than a desire to accumulate more money and more possessions? Wouldn't you have a sweeter enjoyment and a comfort of your earthly blessings that God is giving you if only you had a heart of contentment? Could it be that if you're someone who struggles with joy, someone who struggles with gratitude, someone who struggles with contentment in your life, it's because you are trying to find it in anything and everything but God? God warns us this morning that it's folly and it's useless to find any joy and any contentment in anything but Jesus Christ. Nate Saint, the famed missionary who was killed by the Aka Indians in South America, he once said, People who do not know the Lord ask, Why in the world do we waste our lives as missionaries? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble bursts, then they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for all the years they have wasted. What is it that you are living for? Does the use of your money and your possessions reflect a a heavenly mindset or an earthly one? Do you consider God? Do you consider others? Do you consider your own mortality when it comes to your money and your possessions? Are you only consumed with your work, your possessions, and your wealth? Or are you consumed with knowing Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your tender mercies. 
We thank you for your word, Lord, and help us to be listeners and not hearers only. Help us to take what we've heard and apply it and live it. Lord, there's so many things out there in this world that can capture our attention. So many things that we think we need to run to and flock to and grab and chase after. But Lord, help us to be a church that pursues Christ and knowing Him and treasuring Him and just consumed with Him. Father, this is our prayer this morning that You would help all of us here today make Christ our joy, our treasure. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen. All right.